HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Rancho Gordo, growing the best and most interesting heirloom beans available. Learn more at ranchogordo.com. This week on Meet and 3, we look at how delivery went from convenience to crucial. In a pre-COVID universe, the commissions from these third-party delivery service providers were really high, and you were seeing oftentimes they were as high as 30%, right? I mean, all food is about basically the history of money and the history of technological change, but takeout in particular. I'll go ring a doorbell and watch somebody come outside and wipe down their door in their doorbell after I leave. It's kind of creepy, kind of weird, but that's the state of uh, where we are now. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. What are we going to make? What do you crave? Hold our hearts, our histories, share it on a plate. What do you taste? Bring your body, bring your love, bring the ones you're thinking of. I'm Nico Whistler, and this is Queer the Table. This week's episode was actually a big feat of collaboration. It originally aired on a phenomenal podcast called Bodies, hosted by Allison Berenger. Allison has done some deeply personal reporting on her show, and I initially reached out to her for some advice on how to do the same in telling my own deeply personal story. It's a story that I knew I needed to tell if I was going to make a podcast about the intersections of queer identity and food, but I was really nervous at first. It ended up being a huge dream to work with Allison and to have her support every step of the way. She does a really beautiful intro that also gives some more context about bodies as a show, so I'm just going to let her take it from here. I'm Allison Berenger, and this is Bodies, a podcast about people solving the mysteries of their bodies. 
This is the last episode of season two, and I've been thinking about how one of the common injustices in many of the stories this season is how the medical establishment and a lot of big structures in our society want us to be one thing. But we are many things, and that can be lonely in a world that doesn't make space for complexity. Bodies is about illuminating every one of those complex layers and sitting in the chaos of our inner worlds, not to fix the messiness, but to examine it and honor it. Today, we're doing something new. We're featuring a rising independent producer named Nico Whistler. This is Nico's story, and it's about that complexity. It took Nico a long time to realize they could be many things at once. It's a tale of two mysteries that become one. Here's Nico. In the spring of 2014, I was 23 years old. I had just moved to San Francisco for my first real job. Things were good. And then, all of a sudden, I stopped eating. I became obsessed with counting calories. I didn't let myself eat more than five or six hundred a day. A banana for breakfast, a salad for lunch, steamed broccoli for dinner. If I had a meal that felt unhealthy, I would make myself throw up afterwards. I wasn't sure why I wasn't letting myself eat. It wasn't that I wanted to look different. It was more like I wanted my body to feel different. I wanted parts of my body to disappear. When I pulled on my jeans, I did it quickly, trying to avoid touching the curve of my hips. In the shower, when I ran the washcloth over my body, I tried to turn my brain off when I cleaned my chest. But this compulsion to count calories didn't line up with the identity I had built for myself. Most weekends, my friends and I went for bike rides outside the city. It felt rad to ride as part of an all-women crew. My friend had a jersey that said, blue skies, big thighs. One day we went out for a long, hilly ride. We stopped halfway for a snack. My friends got sandwiches and smoothies, and I ordered a small kale salad. Before my friends could say anything, I lied and told them that I'd had a really big breakfast. I was worried about my friends finding out that I wasn't eating. I was worried that they would tell me I knew better. I did know better. I minored in gender studies. I was in the vagina monologues four times. I didn't even date men. I knew that diet culture was bullshit. I knew that my worth wasn't determined by my weight. I felt too feminist and too queer to have an eating disorder. The final climb back up to the Golden Gate Bridge is a windy, steep, three-mile hill. I've fallen way behind my friends. I'm starting to really slow down. The hill is getting steeper. I feel lightheaded and nauseous. I tilt over to the side, and because my shoes are clipped in, I fall over. I pull my bike to the side of the road. I sit down, and I cry. I feel so stupid, just like, this is ridiculous, why am I doing this? I walked my bike up the rest of the hill. 
Later that year, I was in a bike accident. I don't remember the fall or the ambulance. The first thing I remember is waking up in the hospital. The doctor told me they assumed it was a hit and run. He told me someone had found me unconscious on the side of the road and called 911. But the first thing I thought was, what did I eat for breakfast? Had I passed out on my ride? Later that day, I went home to recover, and at the end of the week, I took a short walk down to the lake. I sat still on the grass and dug my fingers into the earth. I could have died. I still had a nagging fear that the accident was my fault. And even if it wasn't, my body was in bad shape. I hadn't gotten my period in months. I had acid reflux from all the puking. I felt fragile. I decided I needed to get help. I made an appointment with a therapist who specialized in eating disorders. But my sessions with her always felt flat. She would sort of vaguely talk to me about beauty standards. She asked me what kind of shows I watched and what magazines I read. At the end of one session, after a long stretch of silence, she cleared her throat. She told me, I want you to consider that the problem is not your body. The problem is how you've been taught to see your body. I stayed silent until it was time to go. I thought about what she had said on my way home. I felt like there was something more complicated going on. I didn't think I wanted that idealized female body, but I couldn't articulate the kind of body I did want. During the time I was in therapy, I did gradually start eating more. But I think it had less to do with therapy and more to do with the guilt I still felt about the bike accident and the damage I was doing to myself. I ate kind of as if it was a chore. But the underlying discomfort I felt in my body was only getting worse. I felt it when I got dressed. All my clothes felt wrong. It wasn't so much the clothes, it was my body in the clothes. When I put on a button down, I hated the way it tented over my chest. I bought a pack of Hanes white t-shirts, but those never fit quite right either. Figuring out my sexuality had been not easy, but more straightforward. When I came out as queer in college, it felt obvious. I had a friend, and then all of a sudden we were holding hands and falling asleep in each other's dorm room beds and finally kissing. But my experience of gender wasn't tied to other people in the same way. I was trying to figure it out on my own. Until I met up with my friend Jamie for a drink. We hadn't seen each other in over a year, and in that time they'd started to transition. Jamie wore mostly plain white t-shirts, like I did, but... Now theirs fit them, flat against their chest, so that they didn't have to tug at it all the time. Sitting next to them, I felt like the awkward younger sibling, trying to mirror them. I leaned over the bar, elbows wide, just like they did. I became aware of my voice and tried to lower it an octave to match theirs. Jamie told me about their transition. 
Their voice cracked, and they joked about how starting testosterone was making them go through puberty all over again. Look at all my pimples, they said. I laughed. I didn't want the pimples, but I did want the other thing they had, the ease they seemed to carry themselves with. Jamie was somewhere else in this gender universe, and I realized maybe so was I. I walked home. I was just buzzed enough to feel a little bit confident. When I walked in, my housemates were all in the living room. I stood in the middle and asked, can you start using they, them pronouns for me only in the house? I want to see how it sounds and try it out. Everyone was like, sure. My housemate gave me a high five. I went down the hall to my room and laid on my bed feeling my heart pound. I turned the new pronoun over and over in my head. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Rancho Gordo. Over the past 19 years, Rancho Gordo has led the revival of heirloom beans, taking the lowly bean from a healthy but neglected member of the vegetable family to a near superstar status ingredient. From growing the best and most interesting beans available to making sure all crops are fresh and a pleasure to cook with, Rancho Gordo's mission is to encourage cooks to experience and enjoy the unique flavors of heirloom beans. Rancho Gordo produces nearly 30 varieties of heirloom beans and lentils, as well as corn, grains, chilies, and other cooking ingredients. You can learn more at RanchoGordo.com. That's R-A-N-C-H-O-G-O-R-D-O.com. A few months after I started going by they-them pronouns, I decided to buy a binder. Putting it on was not easy. It's kind of like a sports bra and a straitjacket combined. When I looked in the mirror, for the first time, my chest was flat. I turned to one side, flat. And then the other, flat. I straightened my posture, still flat. At this point, I was the heaviest I'd been in a year. I loved how strong I felt on my long bike rides. But I still wish that the parts of my body that felt soft and out of place could disappear. Now, with the binder on, I realized that this was the thing I'd been going for. This was the body I couldn't picture back in the therapist's office. When I went out, I'd just throw on my binder and a t-shirt. Then I could play this idealized version of myself, this cool, androgynous babe. I walked with my shoulders back. I dug into greasy piles of tater tot nachos. There was only one problem with wearing the binder. It hurt. It cut into my ribs. It felt like someone was kneeling on the space between my shoulder blades. I needed to take breaks. I'd go into the restroom and take my binder off. It was in one of these moments, sitting topless in a bathroom stall, that I first imagined getting rid of my breasts altogether. 
Most of the time, the first step to getting top surgery or any gender-affirming surgery is to meet with a mental health provider. Essentially, the provider needs to diagnose you as trans before you can alter your body. This is specific to trans people. Cis people don't need to meet with a therapist before undergoing a breast reduction or augmentation or any other type of plastic surgery. I made an appointment at the gender clinic. At the end of the session, the provider gave me the gender dysphoria diagnosis, which the DSM defines as a conflict between a person's assigned gender and the gender with which they identify. He scheduled me for a consultation with a surgeon, but I never ended up going. I had put my body through hell with my eating disorder, and I couldn't bring myself to do something that felt like more damage. Also, I had a small, secret fear that top surgery wasn't actually something I needed to affirm my gender, but instead was a sick desire that my eating disorder was tricking me into. So I just tried to do the work of accepting my body as it was. Two years pass. It's 2018. I eat breakfast sandwiches without counting calories. I put my pronouns at the end of my email. I start going by a new name. But unless I'm wearing my binder, my body still feels wrong somehow. And it's too painful to wear all the time. I know the solution to my gender dysphoria isn't to restrict food. I'm just not sure what the solution is. And then I interviewed a psychologist named San Chang. Dr. Chang is also non-binary and also in recovery from an eating disorder. They started their career in trans health, and one thing they noticed right away was that a huge number of their trans patients were also struggling with their relationships to food. And at the time, there was no research that supported or explained what Dr. Chang was seeing. I called them on the phone. Here's Dr. Chang. All of eating disorders treatment has these embedded biases about who is most likely to have an eating disorder. It's typically seen as, you know, the stereotype, white, cis, straight women. It wasn't until 2015 that a study about eating disorder prevalence asked participants whether they identified as cis or transgender. The study found that 2% of cis women and less than 1% of cisgender men had been diagnosed with eating disorders. This is on par with eating disorder rates in other studies. But for trans participants, they found that 16% reported that they'd been diagnosed with an eating disorder. That's eight times the rate of cis women. One possible explanation is that behaviors like restricting food or purging could be a way for someone to alter their body to be more in line with their gender identity. Also, trans people often face barriers to accessing healthcare, so eating might feel like one of the only aspects of their body they can control. But we don't know for sure, because even though this study came out nearly five years ago, there hasn't been any follow-up research that looks into why these rates are so much higher. And it's likely that the actual percentage is much higher than 16%. I mean, there's already so much shame that I think is inherent in having an eating disorder, regardless of who you are. But for some people who don't fit that dominant culture stereotype, 
it's really easy to say, well, that doesn't apply to me. It might be a, a protection, a way that, that someone might be able to stay in denial. Like, oh, that's not me. Sound familiar? That stereotype has made its way into every aspect of our culture. I believed in it. My therapist believed in it. And so many trans people haven't been able to get the help they need because of it. And when trans people do access treatment, it's treatment that's based on this very limited mainstream research. So it's not surprising when Dr. Chang tells me that study after study shows that traditional eating disorder treatment doesn't actually help trans people get better. This can be a huge barrier for trans people who are trying to access gender-affirming surgery. That's because, according to the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Guidelines, if a trans person has a mental health issue, like an eating disorder, they need to make sure that it's, quote, reasonably well-controlled before they can get the approval to have surgery. In some cases, there's a really fair medical rationale to this. Providers want to make sure that a patient is physically and mentally fit to undergo surgery. But for most people, this is just another form of gatekeeping. This is systemic transphobia, because embedded in this policy is the idea that if you fix the eating disorder, maybe the gender dysphoria will go away. As if the gender dysphoria is just an ugly side effect of some deeper pathology. And then Dr. Cheng told me about a 2015 study that offers strong evidence that this policy isn't in the best interest of patients. The study found that when trans people with eating disorder symptoms were able to undergo gender-affirming surgery, their symptoms were reduced. Essentially, surgery could be a successful treatment for eating disorders. This didn't make sense to me. I had been doing so much work to accept my body as it was because I thought that that was the thing that would mean I was finally better. Acceptance doesn't have to mean complacence or inaction. Sometimes we need to accept that we need to take action and make changes. And sometimes that means needing gender-affirming medical interventions to feel at home in our bodies. After I hung up the call, I sat at my desk for a long time. Things with food felt pretty much resolved. But the underlying discomfort, the feeling that my body still wasn't right somehow, that had never gone away. Dr. Chang's words felt like permission to reconsider top surgery. Maybe surgery wasn't damage. It was still a hard decision. I had to work through a lot of grief and fear. And... This piece about acceptance felt tricky. It had been true that I wasn't after the idealized feminine body type, but what I wanted for my body came from somewhere. I was worried that I had escaped beauty standards for women only to be caught up in beauty standards for androgynous people. Thin, white, devoid of curves or softness. I wished I didn't have to make the decision at all, that I lived in a world where my gender couldn't be assumed because of my body parts. But deep down, I knew no amount of mental work could get me there. And I thought, maybe it was time to give myself a break. I booked the surgery for March 2020. At the hospital, on the day of my surgery, a nurse brought me back to a room. My surgeon came in. 
She used a sharpie to mark where my incisions would be and where my nipples would go. I looked down, trying to imagine what my new chest would look like. Are you ready? The nurse asked. Yeah, I was ready. That was almost two months ago. I was my surgeon's last patient before COVID-19 hit my city. I spent my entire recovery at home. When I wake up, I put my scar cream on. I rub the cream along each incision, starting at my sternum and ending at my armpit. My scars are a little bit lopsided, just like my breasts used to be. Then I pull on a pair of briefs and make myself breakfast. On weekend mornings, I move slow. The sun comes in through my kitchen window, and sometimes, if I stand in just the right spot, I can feel the warmth spread across my chest. I pour coffee, I toast a bagel, I spread cream cheese on, then I add a fried egg, pickled onions, hot sauce, and arugula. It's a mess. I feel at ease. For so long, I had felt far outside of my body. Now, I'm here. It's not perfect. There are still things I might choose to change, and things I'll choose to make peace with. But whatever the road ahead, I trust that my body and I are going down it together. This episode was written and produced by Nico Whistler. It was edited by me, Allison Berenger, along with Cassius Adair. Hannah Harris-Green is our associate producer. Kristen Lepore is our managing producer. Additional editorial support from Camila Kerwin, Sharon Mashihi, and Caitlin Pierce. Original score and sound design by Dara Hirsch. Mixing by Mike Dodge-Weiskopf. Research support from Liz Charkey. Special thanks to Stephanie Fu and Kalalia. Bodies is supported and distributed by KCRW. Before I let you go, I'm just wanting to double down on the gratitude for everyone who helped that piece come together. Kristen Lepore, Hannah Harris-Green, Cassius Adair, and especially host of Bodies, Allison Berenger, were so incredibly generous with their time and with their care. Bodies is one of the most thoughtful, intimate, important podcasts I can think of. And if you're not a fan already, there are two whole seasons for you to catch up on. I'm also feeling so thankful for Dr. San Chang. Interviewing them was essentially free therapy for me. And they are doing so much critical work around the ways in which eating disorders and other health issues disproportionately affect trans folks. I highly encourage you to check them out. There's a link to their website in the show notes. And on the Queer the Table side, our theme song was written and performed by Denali Gillespie. Natalie Uduella designed our logo, and she also got engaged this weekend. A joy. Uh, You can reach out to us anytime on Instagram at Queer the Table, and you can help other people find the show by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. Queer the Table is powered by Simplecast and is hosted on the Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.